Newcastle, it's so good to see you all here. Bright, shining faces, if you will, stand up if you're able to and join us in worship our King. Welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. I'm Cody Delagrange, and this is my husband, Justin. We love uh, working with junior high and high school students through Rooted Student Ministries. We also are on a care team, supporting and encouraging some global partners in Ecuador. And Justin is a deacon in development on the outreach team. If you don't already have a worship folder, feel free to grab one of these. They're located um, on the desk by the entrances of the Family Center. Um, go ahead and thumb through that. There's a lot of good information uh, regarding the service, about upcoming events. Uh, but just a friendly reminder to uh, take out this check-in card, fill that out, and you can place this in the slots in the front sides of the table at either entrance to the Family Center. Or if that sounds like too much work, uh, go ahead and download the Church Center app 
You can click check in and you can uh, check in from there. We just wanna say a special welcome to those of you who are visiting us today. Please take a few moments and stop by the um, welcome desk in the North Commons. We have a special gift for you there and would love to share more about our church that might interest you. Again, welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. And have a great day here. Those welcome videos have been very well done, so I would really echo those words. Uh, good job on that. So welcome to every one of you today from God and to all of us here at Newcastle. We are so glad that you're here. So a couple of announcements for today. Um, first, the workday, which was scheduled for yesterday. Uh, I still can't figure out why no one showed up for that. <laughs> uh, it's going to have to be rescheduled for this coming Saturday. So hopefully we will have better weather for that. Uh, but same time, same place, and same show. So please come to help us um, accomplish a lot of tasks to glorify God there. And then secondly, uh, believe it or not, just right around the corner is one of the perhaps the most significant events that we celebrate as Christians, Easter. As we think about Holy Week coming up and Good Friday and Easter, um, it's hard to underestimate the importance of these for our lives. So we've got the Good Friday service planned as well as Easter. And we would love to see you there. We would love to see you and your family and friends and co-workers and anyone else. And to help you with this, they've done a wonderful job at creating these beautiful cards that you can feel free to grab as many as you'd like and to pass out to people you know. We're not looking to steal the sheep from some other church, but if there's unchurched people um, in your life, feel free to, to give them one of these. And there's ideas on the website as to how to do that. Uh, maybe you bake a plate of cookies and bring this over and give it to them. But as you're doing that, we want to encourage too, the Great Commission is not just a come and see, it's a go and tell. And so use the opportunity to explain the gospel to them, to find out where they are in their walk with Jesus. And uh, God can use that in some great ways, especially Easter. It seems to be a time when people are really open to um, coming to church and to hearing about the message of Christianity. So we're thankful you're here. Let's pray to as we begin our service today. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are the God of all grace. You know exactly what we need today. So I have no doubt there are many here who are coming with some heavy loads, some challenges, some troubles in life, and simultaneously some are coming with joy-filled hearts, Lord. Uh, but you know exactly what it is. So I pray that your word today ministers to us. Thank you for this wonderful congregation that you have placed us in, Lord. I thank you for each and every one, and I pray today... Uh, no, um, praying that each one leaves knowing that they are loved from God and knowing that there is hope through your gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We live in a pluralistic society where everything is kind of done by committee, it seems, but in God's word we read that there is one name, only one name given to men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. It's by him that we are saved, and it's for him that we have come to worship today. So would you stand with us, if you're able, to sing about that king? Father, before the dawn of time, 
Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Throwed into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. would wait as we constantly roam. The Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Since they are many, His mercy is more. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood beneath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. You can be seated. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Newcastle, you know what we ought to do? Just what we've been doing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Children's Church, uh, if those, there are those here, ages three through kindergarten, if you would uh, want to head out this back door and head to the south uh, area, some folks will greet you, and uh, you'll see an age-appropriate gospel message there that'll be just awesome. We have the great joy of receiving a new member this morning. Uh, here at Newcastle, we value church membership, primarily because the Bible speaks and values church membership. I like what Paul Tripp says 
in the commitment to the local church. He says it's meant to enlighten and protect. It's meant to motivate and encourage. It's meant to rescue and restore. It is meant to instill hope and courage. It is meant to confront and rebuke. It is meant to guide and protect. It is meant to give vision and sound warning. It is meant to incarnate the love and grace of Jesus when you feel discouraged and alone. It is meant to be a visible representation of the grace of Jesus that is your hope. It is not a luxury. It's a spiritual necessity. The question is, are you webbed in? Well, today um, uh, we have the joy of, you can see the picture here, and Pam is here. And Pam, if you would step up here with Pastor Tyson. Uh, Pam has been through a membership class, and uh, she has submitted an application. And, and thirdly, she uh, has been through interviews. And But Pam's been around here a long time. Most of you know her, and uh, it is just awesome to officially welcome her in. Um, she's been very active in our church, her life group. She's been involved in the nursery, after school program, and uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, a friend of mine who I live with that uh, Pam knows pretty well, her name is Teresa, I would say that, uh, man, whenever you got a hold of Pam about something, she said yes. And uh, she's been a dear to so many of us, so it's just uh, with great joy that we receive her, and uh, Pastor Tyson has a certificate for you, And uh, but would you, uh, with a round of applause, welcome Pam into our membership. Well, let's pray. Can we do that? We'll pray for Pam, we'll pray for our hour ahead, and we'll pray for ourselves. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks for the gift of Pam Coe. Thanks for her commitment to lock arms, really, to web in with us brothers and sisters here at Newcastle. And uh, Lord, as she takes a step of commitment and love and the ministry of the one another here in our church, Lord, find us faithful in caring and encouraging her in her faith. So thank you, Lord, that she's already been involved in building up this body. To continue, please, to use her as your instrument of mercy here at Newcastle and beyond. And Lord, as we've been praising you in song about your mercy, Ephesians 2 tells us, it says we were dead dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But you, God, you, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. Lord, as we're going to celebrate your death and resurrection in a couple weeks, it's that which allows us to be made alive together with you. Lord, you gave us new birth. So now we are yours with new life. So we trust you who began a good work in us. So we learned in Philippians 1, 6, a few weeks back, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So Lord, do some of that good work today here at Newcastle this hour in us. Use your word through Pastor Tyson to change us, to transform us that we're not the same when we walk out of here. In particular, Lord, as we've sung about your mercy, help us, and then help us to help others, Lord, as together 
this body locks arms in being your agent of mercy to one another here at Newcastle and then beyond. Oh Lord, our sins, they are many. But let your mercy that is more compel us to be a church of mercy. And Lord, our church partner of prayer this week has been Pekin Bible. And as they are celebrating their 85th anniversary today, we rejoice with they that rejoice. And as all of their previous pastors who are still living are participating in the service this morning, I'm just imagining what that is like. But Lord, let it be a celebration of you and your mercy to the generations of believers there at Pekin Bible. And then our co-partner prayer focus this week has been K&H and Topaz. They just finished a group retreat this past week. So Lord, even as some suffered through some minor health issues, we ask that they would be refreshed, refreshed in you for this special time together. And then it's a season of Ramadan. It started this week. We ask for your spirit to be working and moving in many ways throughout this month, really steering hearts and causing people to search for truth. Your word is truth. And K&H asks, so we ask that they would be bold in sharing that truth, the truth of their security in Christ that isn't on the basis of works, uh, but just simply your good mercy and grace. And finally, we continue to lift up the group that meets in Sapphire. We pray for wisdom and discernment of leaders as they are involved in quite a bit of drama and conflict right now between believers. Lord, let them show mercy to one another, forgiving one another their sins that are many. Let your mercy and their mercy be more. And now continue to lead us with your mercy. That this Newcastle Bible Church, who was made alive by that mercy, will praise you in all we are and all we do. In the name of Jesus, amen. He's the only one by which we can be saved. He's the only one that will then glory in. Will you stand with us and worship again if you're able? my redeemer whose precious blood has ransomed me mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree i will glory in my redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only savior before the holy judge the lamb who is my righteousness the lamb who is my righteousness i will glory in my redeemer my life he bought my love he owns I have no longings for another I'm satisfied in him alone I will glory in my Redeemer His faithfulness, my standing place 
the foes are mighty and rush upon me. My feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who arrows me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever will behold. His face forever to behold. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up or swipe them open to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, just simply raise your hands as our ushers uh, begin to walk down the center aisles here as if they were food vendors at Wrigley Field. They'd be more than happy to hand a Bible out to you to use today or even to keep if you don't have your own. Last week, we saw that we have a responsibility to preserve unity in the church through humility. We learned why we should be united. We learned what unity looks like and, and how to maintain that unity. We learned that God's mercy and his love and encouragement have united us through salvation and compels us to treat others the same. We learned that uniformity doesn't mean that we make other people conform to us or that we conform to them, but that we all conform to God and that we mutually seek the benefit of each other. We learned that selfishness and pride are the number one enemy of God and unity in the church, but that we all often struggle with lack of self-awareness because pride is easier to see in others but it's terribly difficult to see in ourselves at times. But thankfully, God's word helps expose and reveal these blind spots that we have. Disagreements and conflict can be resolved and, and even avoided in church when both people are willing to see that the problem is not in the other person, but in our own selfishness. We learned that humility is the key attitude to maintain peace with each other, even in the midst of a diverse group of personalities, opinions, and desires. The humility is the antidote to our pride. 
And if you recall, we, we, we defined humility last week as, as the attitude of, of being a servant. And it really comes from complete dependence upon God. And what that means is that you recognize that everything you have in life, everything that you are, is a gift from God. When you have that mindset, this removes all grounds for bragging or boasting, and it removes your right to use your, yourself and everything you have in, a, in whatever way you want. Pride claims credit and ownership over everything you have. Your spiritual gifts, your talents, your time, your knowledge, your tongue, your hands, your energy, your mind, your health, all of it for yourself. But humility recognizes that God, as the giver, can determine and does determine how we are to use what he gives us, and he tells us where to use it to serve other people. So with that in mind, Paul then moves on in the text in chapter 2 to inspire us to have that attitude of humility. So if you will, look with me at Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 5 through 8. And if you're able, would you please stand in the honor of God's word? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me as we ask the Lord's help this morning? Father, your word is a rich treasure, and I pray that we would pursue it and seek after it this morning with that in mind, knowing that this is the greatest possession we have. Pray that you would help us to cultivate this attitude of humility, that you would help us to look to Christ this morning, to see him, to savor him, and to rejoice in him, and that it would inspire us to be humble like him. We ask for your blessing over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. History has no shortage of inspiring persons. Uh, we might call them heroes at times. You might not be familiar with Marcel Marceau, but he was a French actor known for his skills as a mime named Bip. And he appeared in several films. He was born in 1923 to a Jewish family. And at about about five years old, he really took an interest in acting by watching Charlie Chaplin. He wanted to go on and be a silent movie star. That might not inspire you by itself, especially if you think clowns are creepy and pantomiming's weird. But by age 17, Nazis invaded France, and Marcel went into hiding. He ended up joining the resistance, and eventually he served by escorting Jewish children across the border into safety. On one occasion, he dressed up like a Boy Scout leader and took a group of boys across the Swiss border, where he handed them off to another handler. During those instances, he would use his skills as a mime to 
entertain and distract the children silently when they were in danger. He saved more than 70 children from German deportation. Marcel is inspiring because he sacrificially used his skills to resist the evil German forces and also to save these Jewish children. He was, he was a hero. All of us probably have some kind of a personal hero that we had as a kid or maybe even still have. Someone who inspired us. Maybe you got to meet them. Maybe you got to have their autograph or a picture with them. Or maybe you shook their hand and never washed it. It could be an actor, an author, maybe an artist, a musician, an astronaut, someone in the military. Or maybe emergency workers, doctors, police, firefighters, paramedics. Maybe it's a historical figure like Winston Churchill or Alexander Hamilton, Louis Zamperini. Maybe it's a fictional person, somebody like a superhero. Maybe like Superman, Captain America. Maybe it's an athlete, Michael Jordan, Stephen Curry, Billy Sunday. Or maybe it's even a missionary, someone like John Payton or Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth and Jim Elliott, or even a pastor who impacted your life. It could even be your parents. We look up to these kind of people because they inspire us with their special abilities, their talents. Or maybe it's because they achieved something through a really hard work ethic or overcame really difficult odds in their life. Sometimes it's their character. And maybe it's a combination of all those things. But when we look to these people, there's a sense of awe and wonder in what they do. And it inspires us to imitate them. If these earthly heroes are enough to inspire and motivate us in a certain way, how much more should Jesus, our divine hero, motivate us to live like him? That's the main point of our text this morning. Jesus' example of humility motivates us to imitate him. Paul wants us to look at Jesus because he was and is the greatest and most inspiring hero of all history. Look at verse 5. Paul wrote, have this, in, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul calls us to have this same mind or, or attitude. What attitude is he talking about? Well, the one he just got done describing in verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but the interests of others. This is the attitude that Jesus has, that he perfectly lived out. No one else has ever had as great of abilities. No one else has had greater character. No one else has ever, has ever had to overcome greater hardship. No one else has ever sacrificed as much, and no one else has been a greater hero and more humble than Jesus. So if you want to preserve unity in the church, if you want to live as a worthy citizen of heaven, look to Jesus as your example. Paul illustrates this attitude, this humility, by showing us how Jesus humbly set aside three divine privileges in order to motivate us. Jesus spanned an infinite chasm between us and him in a mind-boggling way that ought to 
help us see what it looks like to be humble. So let's look at the first privilege Jesus set aside. First, he set aside his divine position. Look at verses 5 through 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just from this first verse, we learn two simple but really profound things. First thing is, Jesus is divine in nature. He is God. The second thing that we learn is that he did not think his divine nature meant that he should be served, but rather that he should serve. So first, he says that Jesus is existing in the form of God. The word form there is a really special word in the Greek. We really don't have an English equivalent for it. But in the Greek, it refers to an internal part of somebody that can never change no matter the circumstance you're in. For example, a baby, a child, a boy, a teenager, an adult, or an old man may have a different appearance, but they exist in the form of a human at all times. They never stop being human. <laughs> Roses, tulips, chrysanthemums, and daisies, they all look different, but in form, they are all a flower. So through the word form, Paul teaches that Jesus has always been divine and always will be divine. His divinity reaches back into eternity past and continues on forever into eternity future. He was divine before the world began. He was divine while on earth, and he is divine today and forever. No circumstance, not even taking on a human body through the virgin birth, would change his divine form. Second, Paul says that he was in the form of God and equal with God. He says, Equality with God is something Jesus did not count or think was a thing to be grasped. Some of you might be familiar with the King James Version that says he thought it not a a thing of robbery. Since Jesus is in the form of God, he is therefore equal with God, meaning he is equal in authority, dignity, and power. That's why the Pharisees wanted to stone him because as claiming to be the son of God, he claimed to be equal with God. But he didn't think it a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It's kind of confusing at first. You look at it just at a cursory glance, and it it makes it sound like his his divine nature, his equality with God, was something he grasped, that he held onto, but then decided, you know what, I'm going to let go of that. Or that he was grasping it, and somebody wanted to take it from him. But that's not what Paul's saying here in the text. What What this text actually means is that Jesus did not consider being equal with God to consist of grasping and seizing. Or in other words, Jesus didn't think being equal with God is about getting, but giving. The NIV really helpfully translates this verse. It says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That's pretty profound. We automatically assume that when you're a high-ranking person in leadership, or peop- that, that people serve you by default. Like if you're a CEO of a company, or if you're the president of the United States, there's, there's things that you're excused from having to do. But Jesus did not view his equality with God as an excuse, but a unique qualification 
for serving others. So then we have to ask, well, what does it mean for Jesus to always be in the form of God, but not use it for his own advantage? What it means is that he set aside his exalted divine position. The fullness of his glory, when he veiled it, he covered it up by taking on human flesh to serve. Jesus' exalted position is the outward display of his glory and his greatness. It's the visible appearance of his glory in the form of light that is always displayed in heaven and what had to be veiled with curtains and smoke in the Holy of Holies, what had to be veiled on Mount Sinai when God descended upon it in the form of a pillar of cloud and thunder. It's the manifestation of his power and will without limitations. It's the sight and sounds of being continually served and worshiped by angels in heaven. It's his enjoyment of perfect, unhindered relational harmony with the Father and the Spirit. It's all that he deserves by nature of who he is. Jesus told his disciples in a very uh, surprising prayer that he left his glory In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had the same glory as the Father before the world began, but he veiled it. So how did he give up his divine position? He left his throne He left the realm of perfection and entered his sin-stained creation. He set aside divine perfection and took on creaturely imperfection by being made like us in every respect, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.7 says that Jesus was made a little lower in position than the angels. Those ministering messengers who were meant to serve God and praise him continually were higher than in position than Jesus. And then Jesus lowered himself further by putting himself underneath earthly rulers and kingdoms. And then he lowered himself even further by putting himself under the position of his earthly parents. And then he lowered himself even further by putting himself underneath the disciples and washing their dirty feet. It's kind of like that show, Undercover Boss, that reality show where company executives disguise themselves as entry-level employees so they can see the inner workings of their company, try to see what needs improved, and see if, if there's hard workers that need rewarded. Those bosses had to set aside and veil their position so that they could do the same work as their lower-level employees. But in a far greater and more incomprehensible way, Jesus veiled his divine position in order to be among us to serve. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus hid who he was like they do in that reality show. He didn't walk around saying, hey guys, I'm just a normal dude. He never denied or minimized who he really was. He didn't didn't hide his divine nature. But he set aside using his position for his own good. When the Sadducees instituted a temple tax, he paid it. When the Pharisees were disrespecting him and challenging him, trying to entrap him, he could have exercised his power at any time over them. When Jesus was mocked, beaten, tortured, and crucified at any moment, he could have said, don't you know who I am? 
I can unmake you. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. The only true legitimate use of that phrase. He could have summoned a legion of angels at any time, but he didn't. So why did Jesus willingly do this? Why didn't he use his exalted position for himself? He certainly was worthy. He didn't need to do anything for us. He didn't need to create us. We don't contribute anything to God's needs because he doesn't have any. He did it because it's part of his character. To use his divine position to serve others, that's what we call love. 1 John 4 eight says, anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. To be God, to be equal with God is to be loving, to be self-giving. You know that phrase we use when we don't want to give up our position to serve? Not my job, not my responsibility. That's what we say or think when somebody asks you to do something or, and you don't think that should be expected of you. It's the attitude of avoiding any type of work you view as beneath you. It's an attitude of self-importance that leads us to wait to be served rather than initiating serving. When something falls beyond the scope of your normal responsibility, you wait. Wait it out. See if someone else is going to do it. You try to avoid the task. When someone sins against us, we can think, hey, it's not my job to go to that person. They sinned against me. They need to come contrite and broken to me. When somebody disagrees with us on something, we can think, it's not my job to prefer others. They should prefer me. If I say or do something I can tell somebody doesn't like or agree with, hey, it's not my job to help them come to terms with this. They need to get on board. It's not my job to seek peace with other people. If they got a problem, they should seek peace. Jesus didn't have this attitude. And praise the Lord that he didn't. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to come asking for forgiveness. While we were his enemies, while we were helpless, he came. He set aside his position of, his divine position to come to us. Jesus willingly set aside that and so much more. Setting aside his divine position isn't the extent of his humility. He descended even further in degree. Not only did he set aside his position, he also set aside his divine rights. We look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When it comes to rights, we love our rights in our country. We're all about them, and rightly so. Because the idea of having rights comes from the Bible. It's anchored in the fact that we all bear the image of God and therefore have inherent value, dignity, and worth. The Declaration of Independence even recognizes this. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first 10 amendments of the Constitution are known as the Bill of Rights. A right is a power or privilege to which one is justly entitled. But sometimes 
we create rights where they don't exist or we cling to and worship our rights above all else. Whenever we feel someone infringing on our rights, we bristle and resist. Don't you tread on me. Not only as American citizens, but as church members. I give money to the church. That means I have a say in what you do with it, and I have a say in what happens here. I'm a shareholder. Oh, don't you know my expertise in this area? I should be consulted. You should listen to me. Don't you know how much time I've spent serving or working on this project? You can't treat me that way. I deserve to be consulted on these issues and to have my opinion heard. All of us can struggle with a sense of entitlement based on our efforts or our position. But ha- and, and I'm not saying rights are wrong. Having and exercising our rights is, is not the problem. It's the worship of our rights that causes us not to consider others more important than ourselves. Jesus had every right to be worshipped and served. But instead of having that attitude, Paul says in this, in verse 7, he emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, we've already established in the previous verse that Jesus never set aside his divine nature. He never stopped being God So it can't mean he emptied himself of his deity. Paul's not using the word here literally like you say, I'm emptying a cup of its contents. I'm pouring out the water. I'm emptying it. He's using it metaphorically like he does in other passages in the New Testament to mean deprive. Jesus deprived himself. Well, how do you do that? Well, he explains further in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant first and second, being born in the likeness of men. This this is interesting, though. There's some crazy theological math going on here. Generally, the idea of emptying means subtraction, taking something away. But in theological math, Jesus subtracted through addition by taking on. He didn't subtract his divine nature or even his divine attributes, but added the form of a servant in human flesh. We're wading into the deep end of the pool here. This is, this is some pretty crazy stuff. Paul uses the special word form again. This is really important. Just as Jesus was in the form of God, divine in nature, he took on the very nature of a slave. Now, Jesus didn't exchange natures. He, he did this through addition. Jesus, the creator, the owner of the universe, added the nature of a slave. Another way to say it, is that he gave up his divine rights because being a slave is to have no privileges and no rights. One commentator reminds us of the status of a slave. He says, quote, A slave owned nothing, not even the clothes on his back. Everything he had, including his life, belonged to his master. Jesus did own his own clothes, but he owned no land or house no gold or jewels. He owned no business, no boat, and no horse. He had to borrow a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He had to borrow a room for the Last Supper and even was buried in a borrowed tomb. He refused any property, any advantages, any special service to himself, end quote. By becoming a slave, he gave up his voluntary use and exercise of his divine attributes, He didn't stop being omniscient. He didn't stop being all-powerful. 
He just gave up his own prerogative to use them when he saw fit. He gave up his eternal riches for poverty on earth. He gave up face-to-face relationship with his father. He gave up independent use of his divine authority. He waited to be told what to do. So who was Jesus a slave to? John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He was a slave to the Father. He submitted himself to the Father. John 5, uh, verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus submitted himself, every thought, every word and deed to the will of the Father. Jesus' goal was to glorify the Father in carrying out his plan of redemption. In Matthew 20, 28, he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus embraced the form of a slave by doing the menial servant tasks no one else wanted to do. It was the Son of God who stooped to wash the dirty feet of his disciples while they were bickering about who was going to be greater in the kingdom of God. But finally, Jesus emptied himself one step further, being born in the likeness of men. The incarnation, becoming a human. It says likeness in the text, being born in the likeness of men, because Jesus was completely human except for one aspect. He didn't have any sin. He was the perfect human, unlike us. He represented everything that we were supposed to be. Jesus gave up his divine rights by taking on a human body. He became a human embryo, miraculously placed in the Virgin Mary's womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is crazy. The eternal God of the universe who existed outside of physical time and space entered into his creation and became a helpless baby gestating for nine months. The all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God became completely dependent on his earthly mother and father to feed him, to change his diaper, to potty train him, to teach him how to eat, to speak, read, and how to function in life. How humiliating, how humbling that is for the God of the universe to do that. He became dependent on maintaining the health of his physical body with food, exercise, medicine, and sleep. He became vulnerable to hunger, fatigue, sickness, pain, suffering, and temptation. This is the great mystery of his incarnation. Jesus did not subtract his divinity. He added humanity to it. He exists right now in heaven, interceding on behalf of all believers with a glorified body forever. This is what the theologians use a $20 word for. They call it the hypostatic union. You can tuck that away for later use. That means that Jesus wasn't half God, half man. He was 100% God, 100% man. I know that that seems to equal 200%, but in Bible math, it doesn't. He was God-man. As John Owen would say, this is a mystery that can't be divided, mixed, or separated. It just boggles the mind. 
Why did Jesus have to be born? Why did he have to become in our likeness and take on flesh? It's because of his ability to save us was dependent upon him. He needed to be a man so that he could represent us as a mediator in God's courtroom in two ways. By first, substituting his record of obedience in place of our record of sin in order to satisfy God's demand for perfect obedience. And second, so that he could substitute his life for ours as payment for our sin, thereby satisfying God's justice. He gave up his rights to accomplish salvation for us and glorify the Father. So we have to ask ourselves, as we look at Jesus' example, why are we unwilling to give up our rights for other people? I'm not saying you should never exercise your rights, but that you should be willing to set them aside for the sake of others, for unity, and for the sake of the progress of the gospel. Paul set aside his right to financial support as an apostle so that it wouldn't cause others to stumble. In 1 Corinthians 9.12, he wrote, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We too must be willing to endure anything for the sake of Christ. We should use our Christian liberty, our freedom, to please others and not ourselves. We should be able to dispense with our reputation and rights for others. Because the Lord calls us to this menial form of slavery. And he promises that when we do, that is where the fullness of joy is found. And even though we can't humble ourselves to the same infinite degree that Jesus did, we still follow his example. This is what it looks like to consider others more important than yourself. This is what it looks like to uh, look to the interests of others and not just to your own. But even though Jesus set aside his position and his rights, we haven't yet reached the lowest point of his humility yet. The final privilege he set aside would lower himself all the way to the bottom further than anyone else has ever gone or could go. And that was by setting aside his life. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as God, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a human. As a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It was a humbling thing to become a human for him. Those who saw Jesus just saw a mere man. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. When people saw Jesus on earth, he was just an average Joe. You never would have assumed that he was divine in nature. As a man, he humbled himself by undergoing arrest a sham of a trial, mockery, being spit on, beaten with fists and sticks, having his beard plucked out and his body shredded through flogging. Yet he refused to assert his divine privileges. It's interesting, this verse says that he humbled himself. Nobody else could humble him. He humbled himself. And he did it by becoming obedient. Is that, does that mean Jesus had to learn to obey? It does. But not in the same way we learn obedience. We learn obedience by sinning less. 
Jesus never sinned. So when we talk about Jesus learning obedience, what we're really talking about is Jesus having untested obedience as a human, similar to Adam and Eve in the garden when they were first created. Untested obedience. But now that Jesus had submitted himself to the Father, now that he took on human flesh, he could experience suffering and temptation, something that was not on his radar at all in heaven. Every trial and temptation he encountered was a test wherein he demonstrated his perfect obedience in every way. He was tried and tempted in every way, just like we are, so that he can be a sympathetic high priest. The final test that Jesus took was suffering through death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. For us, death is a necessity on account of our sin. But for Jesus, death was a choice. He chose to die. And not just die, but die the worst and most humiliating death. It was a scandalous death to be crucified. Remember, the Old Testament deemed a man hung on a tree as cursed, damned by God. Even the Romans considered even mentioning the word cross to be an obscenity, like using a curse word. Yet Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will in the garden, saying, not my will, but yours be done. But even the physical death of the cross wasn't the worst part. The three-hour period while he was on the cross and darkness covered the land, that was when Jesus, infinitely being God himself, bore the infinite wrath of God in a three-hour period. How did that happen? I have no idea. But only something the God-man could do. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus set aside his life for us. So if we follow his example, does that mean we ought to be ready to die for each other? Not in the same way Jesus did. We can't atone for sin. We don't need to. Jesus did it. It's all done. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to pick up our crosses daily. We are to figuratively die to ourselves every day for the sake of Christ and others. We are to crucify our flesh. We are to figuratively pour ourselves out to be a living sacrifice for God and others. If we do that, then maybe there will be times in the future like the great martyrs of the faith that God would call us to truly sacrifice our life. But if we don't sacrifice daily on the thing, general things of life, then we probably wouldn't sacrifice our actual life for somebody. John Owen is, was an English Puritan pastor and a theologian. He wrote this in his book, The Glory of Christ. This, then, is the foundation of the glory of Christ in this condescension. In other words, his humiliation is the basis of his glory. He says that the Son of God, becoming in time to be what he was not, the Son of Man, ceased not thereby to be what he was, even the eternal Son of God. Jesus' humility is part of his divine person, and it is mind-blowing. 
It's what makes him glorious. No human invention could ever come up with a a God who would do this. He is the greatest example of humility for us to follow, but he's not just an example. He's nothing less than an example, but he is so much more than that. The profound nature of of Jesus' humiliation is that his descent is what elevates him. It's why God exalted him above every name in heaven and on earth. Jesus set aside his divine privileges in love to serve us sinful creatures. It's his love that calls us and drives us to imitate him, to imitate his example of humility by setting aside our life for God and others. But to imitate him, just like you would imitate anybody else, is to watch him, to look at him, So you have to ask yourself, is Jesus your hero? Is he my hero? Is he someone that I look to for inspiration? Am I inspired by what he did and seek to live like him? Do you reflect on him and what he has done? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 that we are changed, we are transformed from one degree to another progressively while we look at Jesus. So I urge each and every one of you, I urge myself, look at Christ. Look at the one who created the solar systems, yet stooped to wash the feet of sinful man. The one who created each and every one of you, yet hung, bare and exposed on a cross. Look to him who, come, who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Each one of us in this room is responsible for pursuing the attitude of Christ, not ensuring other people are doing it, taking responsibility for ourselves and doing it. We will never be more like him than when we are humble. If you picture a triangle with Jesus at the top and you and another person at the bottom points, and you can see the effect humility has on our unity. As we look to Christ and grow more like him, we grow closer to Jesus. As we grow closer to Jesus, we grow closer to each other. The more humility, the more unity. The less humble we are, the further apart we are from Christ and the further apart we are from each other, and the more easy it is for us to be divided. This is a a high calling. This is a difficult attitude of humility to cultivate. And we can't do it in our own strength. We have to be humbly dependent upon Jesus. He's not only our example, but also the one who helps us live it out. Like in our benediction, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, it reminds us that the fruit of righteousness comes through Christ. So let us all marvel at Jesus our hero, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we may be like him and preserve unity in our church through humility. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we have sung this morning, you are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all. You laid down your life holy and completely for our sake. You set aside 
your great glory in order to serve us. We don't deserve it, but we thank you and praise you for it. You are so gracious and kind to us, and I pray that we would be motivated by love, the same love you showed us, that we'd be motivated by that to seek to emulate you, that we'd be inspired by your love to put our sin to death and to consider others more important than ourselves. I pray that you would work that in us because we can't do it apart from you. Help us to keep our eyes, our gaze set and focused upon you and help us to marvel. How can it be that you did this for us? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're familiar with the old adage, you make your bed, you lie in it, which is to say you caused a problem, therefore it's your problem to fix. In this song that we're going to sing now, we're going to say, died he for me who caused his pain. It's totally backwards. We caused the problem, yet he's got the fix for it. He died for us. doesn't really make sense until you add the refrain, amazing love, how can it be? Would you stand with us as we close out our service? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me Bound in sin and nature's night, thine I diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with mine. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose when born. 
condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in Him is mine Alive in Him my living head And clothed in righteousness That should be our response moving forward, henceforth. Amazing love, how can it be? How can it be? It's his love that motivates us, that spurs us on to repentance, that spurs us on to follow and emulate him. I would encourage you, if, 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 the, if you've been listening and studying God's word with us this morning and the Lord's just brought something heavy on your heart or convicted you of something, and if you want someone to talk to, uh, us pastors will be available here at the front of the stage if you want to talk. And if you've, this is the first time you've ever heard anything about the gospel, about Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on a cross to save us from our sins and you want to learn more, we would love to talk to you about that. So Pastor Josh and I will be up here. I know Pastor Scott's here too, back from his vacation and he, he'll be up here or wandering around and we would just love to be here to minister to you. So I encourage you to take that if, if, if you want. But let us close out with saying our benediction together. Philippians 1, 9-11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And all those who are inspired and find Jesus to be their hero would say, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.